Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Sounding Jewish Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Samantha Cooper, and each episode presents my conversations with musicologists, ethnomusicologists, and sound study scholars who specialize in the music and sound of Jewish experience. I am absolutely delighted to welcome you to today's episode featuring Dr. Tina Fruha. Thank you so much for joining me today. I am thrilled that you've agreed to be a participant on the Sounding Jewish podcast, and I would love to give you the chance to introduce yourself. Thank you so much. Uh, my name is Tina Fruauf. I'm the executive director of RILM and the director of the Barry S. Brooks Center for Music Research and Documentation. I also teach at Columbia University. Wonderful. Well, I'm thrilled to have you here. And you've been somebody I wanted to speak with for a long time because I've heard from uh, other sources that you have a really fascinating personal story to tell. That's interesting. I wonder which kind of personal story people refer to, maybe to my upbringing. I was born in Germany. It's uh, noticeable for my accent. And I grew up in a quite interesting household. By today's standards, it's it's not that interesting, but I was born in the 1970s in a very rural environment. And it was quite unusual that my mother was Catholic and my father was Protestant. And my mother needed to give a signature that I would be raised Catholic, but mm. I wasn't. And uh, that was quite unusual. So I had a very Catholic mother and uh, my father was uh, not religious at all. He grew up in East Germany and he was, you know, rather flexible. But all my schoolmates went to the Protestant church and that was a social hub. And this is where I was brought up socially and religiously. And that caused a lot of trouble at the time mm. because the Catholic priest stood at our door and said, your daughter doesn't belong there. She belongs here. And I was rebellious about it. And so I had an upbringing that oscillated between two denominations within the Christian faith. And that was very unusual. No other classmate had the same upbringing. And my sister was kind of more aligned with what was kind of the, the norm for her. So by the time um, I was in my teens, it was clear to me that I wanted to study church music. Mm. But it, the question was, what kind of church music? Because in Germany, when you get trained as a church musician, it's clear that you either go to a Catholic uh, conservatory or a Protestant one. So for me, it was clear that Protestantism was something that I knew much better than Catholicism. But because I was baptized Catholic... I had to attend the Catholic school, and it was a total time of retraining, relearning liturgy and getting aligned with uh, music that I didn't really know much about, like plain chant, which was on the menu every single week. the time I was done with my studies and I have the equivalent of a master of music in church music by that time I thought well you know if I study musicology I should learn more about yet another religion because that was kind of this fluidity was part of my identity then and I was very open 
And one of my professors who knew that I was a trained organist, he said, why don't you look into the organ in Jewish culture? And for me, this was the total novelty. And I had never heard that there was an organ that was used in the synagogue, nor had I any idea what actually happened in the synagogue. That was a total novel territory. And this is where my journey in Jewish music actually begins. It begins with researching a cultural history and a music history. And with that came the quite immediate awareness that that history is not enough. If I really want to grasp the subject, I need to learn yet another liturgy, which was not something that I felt very alien about because I had gone through this process already, but also another language. So I studied biblical Hebrew at the University of Duisburg. And because there was no Jewish music studies program, I aligned myself with the Salomon Ludwig Steinheim Institute in uh, Duisburg and got a lot of support from them. They also published my first book, actually. I'm quite happy that that happened because it really reflected that I was oscillating between Jewish studies and musicology in quite a good way because it was reflective, again, of the time, the time that in Germany there was no Jewish music studies program at all. Interesting. So was your first encounter with Jewish culture and Jewish sound primarily through this exposure to Jewish organ music? Yes, almost exclusively and on paper. But I knew that paper alone is not the experience I wanted to have. So I went to the synagogue in the town that I lived in back when. That was not quite Duisburg where I lived and worked as organist, but it was uh, the neighboring town. The Jewish community there was so small that actually there was a community that encompassed three cities. So people were traveling on Shabbat from (laughs) three different cities um, (laughs) to attend synagogue, which uh, shows actually the level of observancy, which was not very uh, strictly orthodox, but it was not really aligned with anything either because the rabbi came from Hungary. So he had one approach. Most of the people who attended synagogue service were Russian immigrants. So they had no history in in, uh, practicing Judaism or very little history. So it was a real hodgepodge and it was not quite what I expected and what I imagined. And so for me, this was more of an opportunity to really connect to current day Jewish practice in Germany. Yeah. What did you imagine that the Jewish community near you would be like? I was hoping it was like the the historical sounds that that I studied. There would be an organ, of course. There would be somebody dressed in the garb that is associated with liberal Judaism. And uh, I expected that maybe there's a little choir. none of this there were people (laughs) just talking through the whole service about anything but the Torah portion but they were talking very very deliberately about private matters and and social matters and I was uh, kind of a bit of a balagan in in the synagogue 
which that's I such found, an interesting um, start. Yeah, it, it was very, very unusual for me to experience that. But the rabbi was very open and very friendly. And, and I also met people who were originally born in Israel and had settled in Germany. And I decided very early on that for me, it's crucial to move to Israel for a while and to do research on site, but also to connect to scholars who really can advise me and help me. And so this community was a little bit of a bridge because some people in the community had family in Israel and said, oh, you should reach out to our families. And it was really nice kind of connection. It was very welcoming. And uh, I should say that I didn't know what to expect. I'm not Jewish. I'm German. There's a Jewish community. How do they receive me? How do they receive me vis-a-vis -vis thinking about my ancestors, my family and Germany's own history? Hmm. Yeah, very fascinating. Well, let's take a step back and talk a little bit about your scholarly trajectory. Why did you decide that your initial research topic was the one for you? And then how did you sort of progress from there? For me, it was so clear as an organist that studying the organ in the context of Jewish culture is kind of a match made in heaven. <laughs> and it was so intuitive. There was no question. I could play the repertoire. There were no recordings, so I could make it sound through my own hands and uh, it really felt as a kind of natural extension to who I am, what I've done, both on the religious level, but also on the musical level. Knowing the organ inside out as an instrument, I've worked about 20 years of my life as an organist. That's a long time. That, of course, also encompasses the years after I moved to the U.S. I played the organ here. And for me, this was kind of an intuitive match when I started it. Yeah. So tell me more about that transition from Germany to Israel to the US. Yeah, I've reflected quite a bit on this because I thought that Israel was so formative for me. It was my very first prolonged stay outside of Germany. I never lived anywhere else before. And it's, of course, a very different country, the way it works, the whole culture. And it's very diverse. I lived in both places, Jerusalem and, and uh, Tel Aviv. And for people who have been in those two places, they would probably underline the difference between these kind of two cities and, and what they mean within Israel. So for me, it was a step away from a country that I was a little bit at odds with at, at the time. And the being at odds with had to do with the Turkish population and how they were treated in, in my hometown and about the battles and debates or policies to kind of integrate them. And then I came to Israel with a lot of questions about how the country works in terms of its history and its conflicts. And I felt very much at home. I felt oddly close at home, much more at home than I ever felt in Germany. Mm. And I think it has something to do with the warmth of the people because everybody was extremely welcoming and making friends very easily. I think this is always a good precondition. And I met fascinating people who had been very formative and who I did not expect to meet. So Eliyahu Schleifer was one of them. And he was extremely generous with his time, realizing where I'm coming from, how little I know, and then coming with this vast knowledge in liturgical music and also with a critical mind about existing literature. This critical mind I had not developed yet was very, very formative. And then uh, in Tel Aviv, I had the great privilege to meet Ami Mayani, who is one of the foremost composers of Israel. And he was at the time the director of the Music Academy. 
And I think that he found great pleasure in me doing something very odd. I mean, the organ is not something that people immediately think about when they think about Jewish music. It's not, oh, this is it. Uh, <laughs> so that attracted him. He he I, he thought it. This is quirky. This is new. This is in, in some ways rebellious. There's this German, and and she's passionate about it, and she's doing something that is unusual. And I received great mentorship in form of discussions, integration into the music academy, and uh, really helping me um, max out on the experience of learning about how things work in Israel at the academy and also in the archives that I very much harvested during the time. Yeah. So you were in Israel for a period of how long? Half a year. Half a year. And then were you affiliated with any institutions while you were there? I was a visiting scholar at Tel Aviv University, but I also spent ample time in Jerusalem. I worked at the Jewish National and University Library and Gila Flam, who has been for a long time there and in charge of the materials. She was very, very helpful. Israel Adler was still alive and met with him. So I had these informal meetings without a formal affiliation in Jerusalem, but in Tel Aviv, I had that. Yeah. Well, how... Would you say that your interest in the study of Jewish music was shaped by your time in graduate school, if at all? And likewise, is there advice that you would offer to prospective students or new scholars who are thinking about entering this field of study? Well, when I was in graduate school in Germany, there was nobody really who had any fluency in the subject that I was studying, not even in the subject area, which I think at that time I would not have designated Jewish music as a field of study, but as a subject area. So I was very much on my own. And for me, the only way really to get through graduate school, which is very different from graduate school in the United States, which uh, is, is much more schooled in a way, and uh, there's much more mentorship. It was a period of really becoming very independent and learning how I can actually source knowledge by not relying on resources that I don't have in my own institution, but by mm -hmm. network. Yes. And one very formative person who was very, very supportive at the time and knew both systems, which was so important, I think, in order to really guide me and also make sure that my PhD studies are, are aligned with the German expectations was Philip Bowman. Philip Bowman, with his fluency, not only in, in the German language, but also in the German system, knew very much what I was kind of up against. And yeah. at the same time, he really wanted to helped me to achieve my goal and he was of really great help. So my big takeaway is even though most of the people who will listen to this podcast will be in the United States or in uh, the Anglo-American realm of education, I'd say that even though I was being educated in a very different system, the idea that one seeks mentorship regardless, one seeks mentorship depending on where one needs it and who can provide it rather than staying siloed in one's institution is really vital for one's development. Yes, I found the exact same thing, that building a network is crucial to have a future in this discipline, both during graduate school and afterwards. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about your research projects following your organ book. So you publish your organ book and then you turn and decide to look at I decided to look at Germany again, but from a very different angle. I got really interested in Germany after the Holocaust 
it was kind of an interesting choice for me because I looked at liturgical music until the Holocaust. Then I skipped the Holocaust and then I looked at the post-war period. And I did so with a very dear colleague of mine, Lily Hirsch. We met at an AMS conference. We brainstormed what we both wanted to do next because she had written a book that was focused on the Jewish Culture League. And she was very much kind of in line with the German-Jewish realm. So we brainstormed and then we both kind of agreed that we want to do something together. It's less burdensome and give each other support. And we organized with the help of another colleague at Dickinson College, Amy Blodarski, a symposium on post-war Germany. And that symposium led to a book publication, Dislocated Memories, And that in turn was the foundation for me devoting a whole monograph on the subject and very specifically on the Jewish community. And this book came out just one and a half years ago. It's called Transcending Dystopia. And in a very encyclopedic, comprehensive way, it's also meant to be a source book. It really tells the story of the Jewish community and their music from 1945 to 1989. Beautiful. And what did you find when you were working on Transcending Dystopia? What kinds of narratives were you able to pull out from this history? I think one surprise for me was the constant negotiation of continuation and rupture. And it felt really constant and and it felt it hinged upon certain individuals that really kind of dominated the scene in Germany at large. It was such a hard book to write because I've been dealing with many Germanies. There's the Germany of 1945 to 1948-49, which I call the Periclean period, because it feels like there's no rupture at all. There's just continuation. May 1945, let's do a concert. The war is over. So a, a very, very big surprise for me to find these programs and, and these kind of social approaches to music. The other Germany was West Germany, a, a Germany that I thought I knew because I grew up in West Germany. And then actually the biggest surprise for me was East Germany, which is the Germany of my father, where he was born. And this is where he had family ties. And this is the Germany that I was being brought up to believe is the wrong Germany. Well, 
And so I'm studying actually Jewish music within a context that I had certain thoughts about and also certain preconditions. And then finding really a kind of narrative that feels so contradictory in many ways that it's so hard to read. And I'm still grappling with this kind of contradictions that I found of the government on the one hand promoting Jewish music, but then also not promoting it, and of people being involved, being very much in line with the government and tying Jewish music into it, while others are critical. So there are all these kind of contradictory norms that actually, at the same time, not only coexist, but also overlap. So the political aspect, I think, was not something that I anticipated I would address or dive into, but it had to to be addressed. Was there a certain kind of music in the Germanies as you were looking at them post-war that was associated with Jewishness, or was this manifesting in many different ways? Well, there's the historical aspect that there was a whole cohort of people who really wanted to stick to repertoires and performance configurations that were prevalent in the early 20th century by way of continuation. And there's kind of the new moment, bringing in Israel to Germany, specifically West Germany. East Germany wasn't quite easy, even though it happened too. But because of the political frictions, it was very undercover in East Germany. But in West Germany, really bringing Israel musically to the Jewish communities to kind of really show the bond that was established between the communities in West Germany and Israel. Very fascinating. Since you wrote Transcending Dystopia, you've actually undertaken another book project. I'm constantly impressed by how prolific you are as a scholar. And this project was the handbook on Jewish music studies. I'd love to invite you to just tell me about this more recent research project and what it was like to undertake this edited collection on Jewish music and why you decided to select it. And then, of course, what excited you most about it? Yeah, so the Oxford Handbook of Jewish Music Studies, as it's now called, is a project long in the making. It goes back at least 10 years, if not longer. It originated in discussions with Oxford, proposals, revisions of proposals, until I arrived at an approach that I thought was in line with what Oxford really seeks in these handbooks, being forward-looking, being innovative, 
and also kind of positioning an area or field. And uh, I just want to comment very briefly on the change in title. It was supposed to be the Oxford Handbook of Jewish Music. And I changed it to Jewish Music Studies because I thought that during these years that I've been working on it, that it's really about establishing Jewish Music Studies as a field and give scholars certain pillars and certain ideas to work with to make this very diverse field with all the methods that could be used, with all the topics that could be used, kind of to bring it under one umbrella in a way and make it a bit more coherent for people so that it doesn't feel like a rhizome of topics. Yeah. But at the same time that it feels genuine and not contrived. It was a very long process to actually get to the approach that I settled on, which is overall a spatial approach. I kind of came with the um, general stance that Jewish music is a global phenomenon. It's not part of let's go global, but it's part of we have always been global and people have always looked into all areas of the world to study Jewish music. But how do we deal with this globality in a structured context? And for me, the structure emerged quite quickly by thinking of how I teach my seminar at Columbia University, which is also spatially inspired and things from large to small. And so for the Oxford Handbook, I started with very, very large spaces, Adama, the land, and then going to smaller spaces, Ir, the city, ghetto, which is within the city, and getting kind of smaller and smaller in a spatial configuration to really show the distribution of very different types of Jewish music within the world, but within a kind of organized and coherent manner. So there were 31 contributors. That's a lot. Originally, I had a list of 120. That would have been impossible. You know, a lot of people backed out or changed their minds or couldn't finish their, their work or simply disagreed with, with my approach, which I think is an honest thing to do. I think one doesn't have to be in agreement. I think one can actually take something that one disagrees with and create something more out of it. And I hope that people will do that and think that this is a first foray to systematize a field of study and out of which other attempts can grow to form this field of study in a very coherent way. Yeah, I think it's really an incredible story to be able to share that you began your work with Jewish music studies so fundamentally external to this whole field. And gradually, you've become the maker of it, in a sense. You've centered yourself with this work on the edited collection. And you basically are helping the whole field to understand itself as a field, which is just incredible to see and to watch and to hear about from you directly. So thank you for that. Would you say that there are currently research questions or subjects that are preoccupying you at the moment? Always. There's <laughs> not a day when I'm not preoccupied by research questions. And I've worked very conceptually and in a very heavy-duty editorial manner to get the Oxford Handbook accomplished. And so I'm now taking a step back and look again at smaller forms of writing after yeah. all these book projects. One topic that I'm very preoccupied with is actually a woman that came to fascinate me. Ruth Schönthal is her name. She celebrates her 100th anniversary of birth this year. I've just completed an encyclopedia article for MGG Online for her. And I'm working on several lectures and additional publications. I'm quite fascinated by her and 
her whole trajectory, living in different countries, embracing different cultures, being very fluid in her kind of cultural approach, which affected her compositions. it's something that I like to identify with somehow. There's no parallelism because I haven't lived in, in Mexico and Sweden and I haven't taken a boat from Yokohama, but I think that uh, I would have liked to. And, and somehow I, I admire this woman very much. And I think it's kind of beautiful for me to go back now and do some more hardcore musicological work, doing musical analysis, which I think is and should be at the core of every musicologist. And going back to that is something that I really enjoy. I've just written, and it's almost also about to be published, a corrective biography of Louis Lewandowski for another encyclopedia. very interesting to me how especially in the cantorial world there's a lot of myth making about how people grew up how they acquired musical knowledge and I was with my work on Salomon Sulza already quite in tune with one needs to kind of look closely and distinguish between fact and fiction so I've transferred that to Louis Lewandowski and I'm coming out with a corrective biography which I think is, is very much needed and I enjoy these small forms of encyclopedic articles I'm collaborating with a colleague on a venture that highlights Jewish music in pre-1800 Europe. And I'm working on an article there. These are all very small projects. They keep me passionate about Jewish music, keep me in the loop. But I also think that they get me the necessary break to kind of recalibrate, you know, where do I stand now and what do I want to do next, really? Yeah, that's really wonderful. And you mentioned musical analysis, but I'd love to give you a chance to tell me a bit more about the methodological models or tools that you find yourself most often using. How would you say that you developed an appreciation for them? I think that I have an appreciation for any methodology and any approach. And I see this rather in an inversion. My answer is an inversion. I look at my subject matter. I see what it is that I'm dealing with, whether it's film music and anti-Semitism in East Germany, or whether it's an opera and anti-Semitism in, uh, in, in the Czech Republic and beyond. Whatever the subject matter is, I look at what is the primary question that I want to pursue and how can I find a path to actually answer this question with integrity and also with empiricism. And this is when I settle on a method. And uh, the method really comes out of the subject, not the other way around. I have done ethnography, but also very sturdy historical musicological analysis and identifying chord figurations and stylistic analysis. The topic warrants it. I think that we need to be very flexible with our methods and really let the subject matter speak. 
and not adapt to what we know, but adapt ourselves in our approach, in also in our learning curve to what we actually want to investigate. Absolutely. I very much agree with that. How would you say that you understand the field of Jewish music? Coming out of all of these disparate projects you have undertaken and that you're about to undertake, would you say that there are continued issues or challenges with this field of study that we should be remaining attentive to? I think one challenge is to actually be aware that this is a field and that we should not just work within our silo, but that we should work interacting to build this field, to help young scholars find coherency, to create coherence, and especially in ways of thinking, in methodology, in the questions that need to be asked. And I think that what's currently happening actually in, in Pennsylvania at the Katz Institute, those moments are very vital. This is where it can be discussed because so many different people are coming together to work on their own subjects. But where are the contiguities? And contiguity as a concept, and this is not a concept I invented, but I, I borrowed and adapted from the Jewish literary theory. I think contiguities, this is what we should pay attention to to find common denominators rather than seeking what is important over another subject and where the differences we should really focus on commonalities and contiguities. Yeah, that's very well put. Just to conclude for today, I'll ask you the question that I typically ask all participants on this podcast, which is, do you believe that there is such a thing as Jewish music or an identifiable Jewish sound? Why or why not? If so, how would you characterize it? And of course, if this question seems too essentializing, what questions about the music and sound of Jewish experience would you ask instead? To have a music, we need to have a listener. And I don't mean to dodge the question, but I, I think that once one has a Jewish listener, then one has also a Jewish sound. And that's basically the answer to the question, very straightforward. Now the question can be asked, who is a Jewish listener? And I think that there are people who would be debating this answer quite a bit as they would be debating who is a Jew. And I'd just like to close by saying that I am a Jewish listener. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for your time today. It's my great pleasure to have this opportunity to speak with you. And I'm looking forward to everything that you decide to write and do next. Thank you so much, Sam. And now, a brief note from our sponsors. The Sounding Jewish podcast is grateful to be sponsored by the Herbert D. Katz Center for Advanced Judaic Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. This year, in honor of its fellowship theme, The Sound and Music of Jewish Life, many of the Katz Center's public programs, both online and in person, feature scholarship devoted to Jewish music and sound. On Monday, March 12th at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, the Katz Center will host the world premiere tour of Wild Burning Rage and Song, Replies to Scottsboro, at the Weizmann Museum of American Jewish History. This new setting of Yiddish and English poetry responding to race prejudice in 20th century America features Amelia Glazer, Anthony Russell, Heather Klein, and Uri Schrader. This program will then make its way to New York, where it will be given another performance on March 14th at 7 p.m. under the auspices of the Jewish Music Forum and the YIVO Institute for Jewish Research. 
Then, on March 19th at 12 p.m., Dr. Edwin Sarusi will offer the beginning of a three-part mini-course called Singing the Haggadah on Zoom through the Cat Center. Dr. Sarusi will also present a public talk on Israel's national anthem Hatikva on March 20th at 5.15 p.m. at the University of Pennsylvania's Van Pelt-Dietrich Library. Please register online using the links in the show notes. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to the Sounding Jewish Podcast. I would like to take this opportunity to thank our sponsors, the American Society for Jewish Music, the Milken Center for Music of American Jewish Experience at UCLA, and the University of Pennsylvania's Herbert D. Katz Center for Advanced Judaic Studies. Tune in next month when I will be joined by Dr. Jeremiah Lockwood to discuss his ongoing research on the Cantorial Golden Age. Bye for now.